You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. In North America, we are blessed with a rich diversity of waterfowl populations and waterfowl habitats, and we've been quite successful over the years in effectively conserving them. But in many cases, the road to those successes have been long and arduous. They have required creative solutions. They have required tremendous partnerships, some of which that while productive in the end, have been sometimes uneasy along the way. And it continues to require navigating a seemingly never-ending labyrinth of detours and unexpected collisions to continue on with our roadway analogy. On the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking about one example that in current times in particular, exemplifies in great fashion this long road and the persistent challenges that waterfowl populations and their management continue to encounter. This conversation takes us out west to an area that has been described by many people as being, at one time, the most important region for migrating waterfowl on the planet. Things have certainly changed since the days of those early descriptions, and that's what we're here to talk about. That place is the Klamath Basin in southern Oregon and northern California. To give us firsthand information and insight on this place, its importance to waterfowl, and all matter of historical and current developments, including an eventual discussion about avian botulism to boot, are two people that know this region very well. Dr. Dave Mauser, retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service supervisory biologist for the Klamath Basin National Wildlife Refuge Complex, and Dr. Mark Petrie, Ducks Unlimited's Director of Conservation Planning for the Western Region. Dave, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. 
Ed Mark, welcome back to the podcast. You were an episode on an earlier earlier episode, but it's good to reconnect with you. Glad to be back, Michael. Dave, let's start off with you giving our listeners a a, a background on your your professional career. I mentioned at the outset that you are now retired, so congratulations on that. But to give people an idea of where you come from and your credibility to speak on this topic, uh, let, let's do a bit of an introduction. Oh, okay. Well, I without um, getting too long winded, I I went. I got my wildlife uh, degree, my bachelor's at Humboldt State University and a master's at the University of Wisconsin in Stevens Point and a uh, doctoral degree at Oregon State University. Uh, I retired seven years ago with uh, 32 years with the with the federal government. Uh, 22 of those years were as biologist at Klamath Basin National Wildlife Refuge. And I started there. In my temporary days, even before I started working uh, full time there in the late 70s on some steel versus lead shot studies on the refuge and working um, on various refuge maintenance projects as a biological technician. I started working there uh, full time in 1991 or 92, early 90s, about the time that the first um, biological opinion came out. but anyway, I was uh, at the refuge as a biologist for 22 years. Dave, the other thing that I found out about you whenever I was doing my research leading up to this is that you were the 2011 National Wildlife Refuge Employee of the Year. So let me say nine years belated. Congratulations on that very deserving award. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that, that was uh, very unexpected, but appreciated. Yeah. And Mark, uh, as I mentioned, we've we've had you on an earlier episode, but uh, let's give another introduction of you and your professional background and what it is that you do for Ducks Unlimited. Sure, Mike, I'll keep it pretty brief um, because I've been on before, but I've been with DU 24 years now, I think. the first five years, I spent at national headquarters in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, as a uh, as a research scientist there, and then about almost twenty years ago, I transferred out west uh, to our um, western regional office, which is in Sacramento. Although I'm in our field office here in Washington, um, and I mostly work on the science and conservation planning side of things, um, and mostly or almost exclusively on wintering waterfowl. So, obviously, the Klamath Basin um, is uh, very much of interest to me, and I appreciate. Both of you taking the time to join us here. I know y'all have worked together uh, for a number of years on this very topic, and, and I'm excited to hear about this from you guys. I've read a fair bit uh, about the situation out there. I've never been to that region. I think we actually had Amelia Raquel on an earlier episode as well, talking about some of the work that she does out there. So I've I've picked up some understanding of, of the issues, but I certainly don't know them the way you guys do. And it's such an important area for waterfowl. Uh, and it's there are some things that are happening, have happened, uh, well, very recent relative to the timing of, of this podcast, but then also over the past year that bring additional importance to the situation in the Klamath Basin and waterfowl, uh, waterfowl conservationists, uh, waterfowl hunters across North America will, should be interested in this story. And so we're happy to bring it, bring it to them here. And, you know, I've, it, whenever we, we talk about areas or regions where there are some significant waterfowl habitat conservation or waterfowl population challenges, a full appreciation for those challenges as they exist today oftentimes requires us to go to go way back, oftentimes way back to European settlement 
of, uh, of North America and how things developed through the years, because all the things that happened back then in many cases sort of shaped the landscape and the challenges that we, that we have today. And as I've, I've been exposed to a number of stories, a number of regions where, that are important for waterfowl and where we do a lot of conservation work, where we have a lot of challenges and where we are trying to, to deliver innovative solutions to those challenges. And I'm not sure if, there, if I've come across one where the situation is as complex as, as what's, what is happening and has happened in the Klamath Basin. You know, I did some research leading up to this, uh, this episode, these episodes, and it involves, this story is going to obviously involve waterfowl, waterfowl habitats of different types, fish, both anadromous fish and freshwater fish, inland fresh, freshwater fish. It involves some Native American interests, some agricultural interests, irrigation districts, water rights, numerous pieces of federal legislation, uh, one of which is the Endangered Species Act multiple cabinet level departments and their agencies, lawsuits, and you know, two states are involved, numerous stakeholder, <laughs> stakeholder groups. So the list goes on and on. And um, like I said, this is, a, this is a really important story. It's a really important region. And what's happening out there is certainly a priority for Ducks Unlimited and a lot of our other conservation partners. So we wanted to bring this important story to people. So with that, uh, with that, sort of long-winded introduction, I want to start turning the questions over to Dave. And I, I think where it's important to start for people that may not be familiar with that, with the Klamath Basin, is to give us some uh, sort of the, the geographic and ecological setting of the Klamath Basin. And, and Dave, you can, you can uh, approach this however you want to, sort of speaking, in, uh, where is it and then kind of what it looked like historically in terms of the, the, the wetland communities there. But uh, for those that may not be familiar with it, give us an introduction geographically and ecologically to the Klamath Basin. Oh, wow. Well, the Klamath Basin, of course, encompasses a, a very large area from from the headwaters of the Klamath River in Oregon, clear down to the Pacific Ocean in California. Um, the upper part of the basin, what's called the upper basin, is uh, the river is sort of backwards. Um, mostly in, in mountainous areas, the, um, uh, you know, the upper watersheds are steep and the lower watersheds, you start to lose some gradients and things become flat, flattened. And in the Klamath, it's backwards. The upper watershed is, sits on a high plateau, the upper basin, about 4,000 feet. And that's where your lakes and marshes historically were, about 350,000 acres of lake and marsh. <clears throat> and then when you get downstream of that 4,000-foot upper basin, then you get into more uh, riverine, steeper canyons and forest, uh, heavily forested habitats that you sort of envision for the Pacific Northwest. That's, of course, where, where your largest salmon and adermus fish resources are. But in the upper basin, about 350,000 acres of, of freshwater wetlands. Um, principal ones were Upper Klamath Lake <clears throat> and associated marshes. Of course, Thule Lake and Lower Klamath Lakes. Uh, other Sycan Marsh, Klamath, uh, uh, Klamath Forest Marsh. Um, just a whole host of very large inland marshes in the upper watershed. Dave, you said, I think you referenced maybe historically 350,000 acres of wetlands. What kind of, well, what kind of wetland, uh, wetland systems are we talking about there? What's the source of water? 
for those wetlands? Well, the the, the wetland sources of water were pretty much uh, creeks and streams and, uh, uh, of course, runoff snow melts at higher elevations. So snow melt and spring filling of the wetlands were very important. Probably 50% of the upper basin wetlands were seasonal uh, historically. In other words, would dry out at some some period of time during the summer and then reflood with fall rains or the melting snow in the winters. And in terms of the historical vegetation in those wetlands, are we talking about like cattail marshes, bulrush marshes or some other uh, probably in the seasonal wetlands, seasonal components of those? Probably not. But in some of the more semi-permanent, is it going to be like a cattail marsh type of setting? More hard stem bulrush, um, some cattail Um a lot of uh, other sedges and uh, burr reed, water lilies, um, what they call wokus here in the upper watershed uh, in the deeper areas. Okay. I just like to give people a bit of a mental image on these areas because there are a lot of our is- listeners, certainly east of the Rockies, that are not going to be too familiar with those. And this is another one of those times where I will encourage people, if they're listening to this in front of their computer, uh, or even if you're listening to it in your vehicle, once you get home, you pull up uh, Google Earth or Google Maps and go out, uh, navigate out there to this region. You can, uh, I'm sure you could Google Upper Klamath Lake, uh, Lower Klamath Lake, or Tule Lake, and it will take you right to that location. You should be able to find the Klamath River. But uh, developing a mental image of of that region oftentimes helps in in visualizing this story and all the pieces to it. The the wetlands, historic wetlands in the upper basin individually were were really large. I mean, 10 to 20,000 acres in a single marsh was not not uncommon. Uh, Very, very large wetlands. Dave, I I think, Dave, is it fair to say that a lot of that country is high desert? A lot of the upper yeah, basin is yeah. high desert. And so I think in some ways these were very much kind of waterfowl oasis um, in an otherwise very arid landscape. Yeah, essentially the Klamath Basin sits right on that ecotone between the eastern, the deserts on the eastern Oregon, east of the Cascades, and then the wetter Cascades directly to the west. So, yeah, a lot of the upper basin is, is fairly arid or drains a fairly arid area. From an ecological standpoint, I referenced at the introduction that this place is oftentimes referred to, or at least in the past has been referred to as possibly one of the most important areas on the planet for migrating and wintering waterfowl. Dave, speak to that a little bit in terms of where this region sits and its importance, its importance to waterfowl in the Pacific Flyway. Well, of course, it sits in between uh, the breeding grounds in Alaska and Western Canada. Uh, and and the uh, northwestern states uh, and the wintering areas in Central Valley of California and on into Mexico. Um, it was you know, sort of equated, if you consider the migration coming down the Pacific Flyway, the Klamath Basin was like the hourglass between um, between those northern, more dispersed breeding areas and those and the southern uh, wintering areas. And and some of the numbers are fairly astronomical. Uh, when they really began taking good surveys of the birds in the 40s and 50s, you know, there, there's records of up to 7 million birds at one time just on the two uh, lower refuges, Tule Lake and Lower Klamath. So some of the numbers were, were astronomical. Dave, to my knowledge, um, I've looked at those numbers too. You know, six to seven million birds was not uncommon on those two refuges. And I can't think of anywhere else on the continent that we would have ever seen those kind of duck densities during fall or winter. Um, I'm not aware of them if they existed. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was such a phenomenon that I think there was even stories in Reader's Digest and Life magazine about the, the wildlife spectacle that was there uh, in the 1950s. In terms of the some of the principal waterfowl species coming through there, uh, obviously pintail comes to mind because of its importance to the Pacific Flyway. What are the kind of what are the waterfowl species? Uh, and we could even say historically, and I don't know if the species composition has changed through time, but what kind of waterfowl species are going to be most prominent there? Well, if you talk about big numbers in the fifties, um, pintails dominated probably uh, were probably eighty five or ninety percent of the birds. Um, and then, and then a smat, you know, the other species were also there, the similar species you see there today, um, just in more abundance than you, you see today. Um, you know, one thing that Klamath Basin gets overlooked for is the number of diving decks that stage in the basin, um, uh, particularly, uh, the canvas backs that we used to see on, on lower Klamath and Tule Lake. What about its importance as a historical breeding area for maybe cinnamon teal or any other species? Do we have any records of that? Uh, did it serve as a breeding region? Oh, absolutely. That's that's the interesting thing about the basin. It's both a breeding area and a win- or a migrational area. And so when it comes to, uh, I'm getting maybe ahead of myself, but when it comes to managing the wetlands on Tule Lake and Lower Klamath, you have to keep in the back of your mind that I need these seasonal marshes for the migrants are coming, but I also need water through the summer for the for the waterfowl production that's also occurring that is significant, along with the other host of other water bird species uh, that were that are. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. We're on the refuge. We have the ecological and geographic setting for the region, and we want to now talk about 
the era of kind of human settlement of that region and some of the important legislation that began to affect the area and shape the land use uh, through the 20th century and certainly takes us to as responsible in large part for the, the landscape they will have there today. So uh, take us back to the turn of the of the 19th century and what was happening, what kind of settlement opportunities were occurring and then, you know, what what happened in the Klamath Basin to set us on the path that we that we followed for the past hundred years? Probably the first thing of, of legislative significance that happened was that the federal government passed the Swamp and Overflow Lands Act in the middle 1800s, which allowed um, which tra- transferred title of wetlands and overflow lands uh, from the federal government to the states that the states could then sell uh, to raise money to uh, theoretically reclaim these lands for agricultural use. So that was the first thing that happened. And that allowed uh, early homesteaders or early people uh, settling the land to place claims on some of those big wetland areas. A classic one would be the northern half of historic Lower Klamath Lake, uh, about 25 or 20,000 acres were, were, uh, were in private ownership by the time um, the refuge was even established, uh, Lower Klamath. Um, that, uh, so there was early attempts to settle the basin and in about 1880, uh, or so, uh, there started to be the first private works of irrigation in the upper Klamath basin. Uh, and that ultimately led to roughly 10,000 acres being irrigated before the turn of the century. And I think what happened after that point was. I think the early people that were uh, had speculated that these lands would ultimately be drained by by somebody with a deeper pocket than the local folks had. Um, that was an invitation, really, to get the federal government involved. And, and the Klamath Project came to town in the uh, or the Bureau of Reclamation in the early uh, 1900s uh, to look at the feasibility of uh, of reclaiming the. Uh, the historic marshes and lakes in the upper basin and the Klamath project really had its eyes set on, um, you know, the three key components or four key components of the Klamath project were Clear Lake, Upper Klamath Lake, Thule Lake and Lower Klamath. So what they were really trying to do is, you know, they were pretty much the local people, they needed a deep pocket to develop something that big. So anyway, the project started, uh, was, was authorized under the 1902 Reclamation Act, uh, was authorized, the Klamath Project was authorized in 1905. And there was a lot of engineering that went into that before it happened. And uh, I, I will say there was sort of three components to the early rec- reclamation thinking. The, the first was Clear Lake, the Clear Lake area. The second was the Thule Lake area. The third was the Lower Klamath area. But the number one priority was definitely the Thule Lake area. I think that's where the uh, the feeling was that uh, the land uh, values for agriculture were the highest. So, Dave, basically, what we have happening here is an early piece of legislation that was uh, the Reclamation Act that was trying to facilitate irrigation and development, uh, agricultural development, you might say, of some of those portions of the West. And Mark, did that piece of legislation uh, carry into other other places out, out west in California, perhaps? 
Right. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it did, Mike. I think a lot of the irrigation, a lot of the federally sponsored irrigation in the Central Valley was also born under the Reclamation Act. So it had a really, really wide impact throughout the West in terms of really bringing water to the desert, if you will. And, and the Klamath uh, Reclamation Project was, or the Klamath Project, was one of the first projects authorized under the O2 Act. Um, and so, you know, at the turn of the century, people's thinking about wetlands were not as diverse as the thinking is nowadays. And, and mostly wetlands were thought about as mosquito breeding swamps that needed to be put to better use. Um, and so the Reclamation Act or the Klamath Project was, was authorized as a single purpose project. And that was for development of the land for irrigation and agricultural use. And that, that's a very, that's a point that uh, in, in a matter of law that is with us even today in uh, 2020. And so Dave, that necessarily brings with it um, some quote reclamation or, you know, a more direct term would be sort of drainage or the reducing of the size of some of those wetlands, uh, in the interest of agricultural development. And so from my reading, that was, this was a pretty interesting time back then because you had one interest in agricultural development, uh, and development in general, a settlement of that region and enabling people to make a, a livelihood. And then somewhere along the way, people began to realize that, hey, wait a minute, there are other ecological values associated with these wetlands, and it's something we might want to consider. And so not too long after the Reclamation Act, if my reading is correct, there were some there were, uh, there was, I guess, the establishment of one of those first refuges out there. So talk about how that unfolded as we understand it in terms of, on one hand, we have some development and sort of reducing the size of these wetlands. And then on the other, we have recognition of the need to kind of preserve some of these wild wetland areas. Yeah, almost, almost concurrently with the first Bureau of Reclamation Engineers coming to the basin to size things up and, and look at the feasibility of reclaiming the lands, um, early conservationists were also, uh, principally William Finley, uh, a famous photographer with the Oregon Audubon Society, um, famous photographer who was really documenting the wildlife, early wildlife use. So you had, you had those two things going on at one time. And William Finley's um, photographs that he took and his, his uh, personal relationship we, he had with Theodore Roosevelt, um, uh, he was able to get Theodore Roosevelt to uh, pass the executive order um, or, or he established the executive order, the Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge in 1908. And again, notice that uh, the project started in 1905, the reclamation project, and the refuge was uh, established in 1908, three years after the, the project was initiated. Um, and that's reflected in Teddy Roosevelt's executive order, which basically says that, quote, all lands deemed unsuitable for agriculture are hereby dedicated to wildlife conservation, et cetera, et cetera. So even Theodore Roosevelt's um, uh, executive order establishing the refuge recognized the prior uh, claims up to the land um, for reclamation purposes. And of course, Mike, it, you know, a lot of that probably depended on whose who's definition of what was farmable and what wasn't. Um, and that that probably created some of the confusion early on that 
to some extent, probably with us today. Yeah. So if I understand correctly here, then, well, let me just ask it this way, Dave, was there any type of boundary associated with the establishment of that refuge? It doesn't really sound like it was other than within the, you know, the Klamath Basin. Um, uh, How did that work? Yeah, the, the, uh, there was a boundary around the original reservation in, in 1908 uh, via Teddy Roosevelt's executive order. It was uh, I, in the neighborhood of 85,000 acres. It occupied the bed of the historic lake. And the historic lake was pretty much comprised of about 35,000 acres of, of lake, open lake. And then the surrounding areas around it were all um, dense emergent marsh. But even though the... Uh, and and what was difficult was that the refuge uh, established the entire lake bed, but the northern roughly third had already been patented to individuals under the Swamp and Overflow Land Act of 18, uh, the mid-1850s or uh, mid-1800s. So things were complicated from, from the very beginning. I have to th- uh, think about the irrigation project this way, too, to help me understand it. But it's like it wasn't re- it wasn't just about bringing water to the desert. Um, to irrigate, it was also about draining those lakes for agricultural purposes. When we think about our, when we think about an irrigation project, we think about bringing water somewhere. But this irrigation was also about getting water off places, and those two places were Tule Lake and Lower Klamath Lake. Yeah, so that was that was hugely important because I think it was viewed that the lake, those lake bottoms, were were probably some of the most productive soils in the basin. So Lower Klamath was established in 1908. Then I, I know we've also talked about Tule Lake National Wildlife Refuge. When did it, uh, when was it established? And uh, was there, is there any, what kind of association uh, is there between these two refuges? Uh, Tule Lake was established via executive order. I believe it was Calvin Coolidge in 1928. It was, uh, I forget how many, maybe it was around 15,000 acres initially. It was quite a bit smaller than it is now. Um, but Tule Lake historically was separate than Lower Klamath. Uh, it, it was in a closed basin fed by the Lost River, which started up in Clear Lake. And um, so anyway, and what would happen is that lake was a, Tule Lake was a very dynamic lake, kind of like a lot of the lakes in the Intermountain uh, West that are, are very in, much influenced by high, high, uh, high years of precipitation and drought periods. So it would reach a maximum size of, uh, say, 110,000 acres, 46 feet deep, uh, feathering out into um, uh, marshlands on the periphery. Uh, would hold at, at that level, it would hold over 2 million acre feet of water. I mean, it was big. Uh, and it would shrink down as low as uh, 30 or 40,000 acre feet or acres during periods of drought and maybe seven feet deep or so at a maximum level. So some of the, um, the principal means of draining Tule Lake um, was Reclamation built a dam on Clear Lake, which is the headwaters of the Lost River, um, to shut off the inflow to Tule Lake. And then where, what Lost River flow did make it down to the basin headed toward Tule Lake, they built a diversion canal and shunted that water over to the Klamath, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think so. Any Anytime we get into these conversations about irrigation districts and irrigation projects, there's a high degree of engineering that occurs. And so sometimes it might be difficult to get a full mental picture of what's going on. But nevertheless, the point is it became a highly altered, highly or highly engineered landscape with regard to the 
um, the conveyance of that water conveyance and control and allocation of that water. Uh, Dave, there's also the Upper Klamath National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, when w- when was it? And I don't think we've talked much about the Upper Klamath Lake yet, uh, but what about that Upper Klamath Lake Refuge and uh, when was it established? Um, it was also established in 1928, also by Calvin Coolidge. And um, it, it uh, the marshes on Upper Klamath Lake are, they're not diked off from the lake itself. So they're subject to whatever uh, lake level is at dictates whatever water depth are in those marshes. Um, there's there's two units at Upper Klamath right now. Uh, the Upper Upper Klamath Marsh at the north end of the lake, and then Hanks Marsh, about a thousand acre piece, down at the southeast corner. Okay, so we have the irrigation project underway. I actually, uh, I think I saw something where it was it began. The Klamath irrigation project got underway. What was it, nineteen oh six or nineteen oh eight, something like that, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. And and then it wasn't officially completed until maybe 1960 or something of that nature to give people an idea of uh, how long things of that it was in the works. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's about right. Um, it was uh, it was a work in progress from starting in 1905, and um, it it took time. Um, and it, and there's a there's a different story. You know, there's a different story for how. Lower Klamath Lake was drained and how Tule Lake was was not really drained, but allowed to evaporate. And ultimately, Tule Lake and Lower Klamath were linked together uh, by the uh, the deep planted tunnel through Sheepy Ridge, which connects the two. But uh, that's another story there. I'm not sure we're there yet. Mike, I'll just uh, just uh, a note about Upper Klamath Lake. We were talking about Upper Klamath Lake Refuge a moment ago. And uh, it also serves as the main reservoir for the Klamath Irrigation Project, which becomes pretty important to our story a little later on um, in terms of how how ultimately that lake was allowed to be managed in terms of supplying water to the uh, irrigation project. But it, it, that are all, it, and as far as rivers, reservoirs go, it wasn't a great one. It's a very large lake, um, but the problem is it's also very shallow. I think, Dave, it's maybe eight feet at its deepest, I think, I recall. And yeah, that's pretty much its average depth, yes. Yeah. yeah, and so so the, the problem was is then when you, when you did get wet years, um, the lake doesn't have a lot of capacity to store all that extra water to kind of hedge against drought conditions. So Yeah, essentially the, the Bureau of Reclamation and the water users here, they consider their storage is that snowpack in the mountains. What's going to come off gradually through the summer to feed the irrigation system, the lake and the irrigation system. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the, there isn't much storage in the lake. But management of that lake, of course, for irrigation purposes, um, has a big effect on those marshes around the lake. Dave, that point about snowpack is probably a good one to emphasize. I don't think we had touched much on that yet. You know, and snowpack being the primary source of water for that region uh, is is obviously worth pointing out. I did, and I do think it is important, Mark, and thank you for for doing that to kind of clarify the role that Upper Klamath Lake plays in the Klamath Irrigation District. So, what about Clear Lake? And you mentioned it, Dave, but I want to get I want to make sure I'm uh, clear <laughs> to use that word on its role uh, as a source of irrigation water, uh, if if it is. It was originally built. Uh, they put a dam on Clear Lake. Uh, it was originally uh, a lake with a small marsh associated with it, and, and had some good wildlife values. 
And one of the first things the Bureau did, uh, it's on the Lost River. Um, they built a dam at Clear Lake to hold the Lost River water back in the upper watershed so it would not, not reach Thule Lake because they were trying to drain Thule Lake. And uh, now downstream of the Clear Lake Dam, um, there are several irrigation districts that are now dependent upon the waters from Clear Lake for irrigation purposes. So, yes, Clear Lake is now, it, it's a national wildlife refuge under the Fish and Wildlife Service, but the water is managed by the Bureau of Reclamation. Okay, we have, we have irrigation development occurring in the, in the basin. We have a series of national wildlife refuges that have been established and kind of thinking here in the late 20s into the 30s. And what other significant events take us up to the, the 1950s? I know uh, there are some things that occur in the 1950s uh, that we, we want to spend some time on. And then in the 1960s, I think, perhaps if I'm getting my dates right, but uh, what else would have happened in the intervening years that we need to know about here before we wrap up this particular introductory episode? Oh, well, of course, the, probably the biggest event that happened in the 20s and 30s, Lower Klamath Refuge was established in 1908. The Bureau of Reclamation signed a contract with the Northern Pacific Railroad, which the Northern Pacific Railroad was going to build a railroad embankment across the uh, north end of Lower Klamath Lake and Marsh. And the Bureau signed, uh, came up with a contract in 1907 for the, the railroad company to also put in a water control gate uh, on that uh, embankment, which would allow Klamath River water to not reach um, Lower Klamath Lake anymore. And essentially, when they closed those gates, finally in 1917, it took about three to five years, but the entirety of Lower Klamath Lake dried up in the 1920s and 30s. And it was a huge problem for the basin because uh, the, the lake and marsh had about a two or three foot layer of peat on top of, uh, on top of the, uh, the parent material underneath. And so when you expose those lands uh, to the air, to the desert air, um, they caught fire uh, if there was any kind of a spark and they would burn literally for years and the ash would blow and it was a tremendous nuisance to the local community, not to mention, of course, the, the giant loss to the wildlife resources that used to live there. Now, in the 20s and 30s, on the other side of the Sheepy Ridge to the east where Thule Lake is, um, the Bureau had successfully shunted the Lost River water uh, from Clear Lake over to the Klamath, shutting off the source for Thule Lake. But what was happening is as they developed the, the Klamath Irrigation Project, upstream of Thule Lake, you start to generate return flows from those farmlands. And those farmland, the return flows from those farmlands end up in the bed of Thule Lake again. And so Thule Lake starts getting bigger again. And it's limiting the ability of reclamation to reclaim the bed of Thule Lake for agriculture. So you have, you have, too, you have too much water on the Thule Lake side of the hill. And on the other side of the hill, you've got lower Klamath that's bone dry and blowing away. So in 1938, a reclamation engineer um, uh, came up with a, uh, an engineered solution to the whole problem. And that was to build a tunnel through the ridge connecting the excess water in Thule Lake to the dry lake bed of lower Klamath. And so that enabled uh, the rewatering of lower Klamath 
and the shrinking in the size of the then Thule Lake. That is the whole, there was a, there was a, uh, the ITIC report, they call it, was the Bureau's report. And then there's a report called the Fairchild Report, who was the refuge manager in, in 1938 at, at Tule Lake, or Lower Klamath and Tule Lake. And so the service came up with a big plan with what they were going to do if they got the water. And the Tule Lake side, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation came up with their big plan on what they were going to do with the lands on that side. So... In, in in general, the Bureau was going to get 20,000 more acres to homestead and reclaim on Tule Lake, and they would be reflooding uh, up to 17,000 acres of the lower Klamath Lake bed and have more irrigation water for farming over on the lower Klamath side. Is that conveyance structure still present and still used? Oh, yeah. Yes. It, it's, it's a key component of, uh, of uh, managing water on the Tule Lake uh, floodwaters, irrigation waters on the Tule Lake side of the hill. This is more complex than I ever imagined. <laughs> that whole report, that whole report and the agreements between reclamation and the service um, explain everything about how, why the project looks the way it does today and the whole relationship between water management on Tule Lake and Lower Klamath. You need an engineering degree to understand some of this stuff. <laughs> Apparently. It, it is very complicated. Uh, <laughs> maybe it took me 22 years there to understand it. I don't know. <laughs> well, again, thank you for joining us here to give us the Cliff Notes version of it and train us up on this. I, I tell you, it is, it's something. Um, and, and here it is an area that, that uh, is of critical importance to waterfowl. And, and obviously, obviously that's, that's why we're talking about it and wanted to bring this story to people. Uh, we, we've talked a lot about engineering and the specifics of where these lakes are and the drainage districts and sort of the historical uh, development of of the situation there and you know eventually we're going to get to the story of what's happening now and how all of those early decisions and early pieces of legislation and all these other uh, aspects of the irrigation structure are, will come into play um, but for now we probably are at a good place to wrap up this first episode like I said we have a lot more to cover um, but I'm gonna Dave I'm gonna ask you and Mark to, to uh, join us here on another episode episode and we'll we'll continue the conversation and uh, yeah so thank you guys for joining us here on this episode well thank you michael thanks for having us mike a very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Dave Mauser and Dr. Mark Petrie. We, we greatly appreciate their expertise on this, this incredibly complex topic, but one that is very important to waterfowl conservation in, in North America. Uh, as always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, who does a great job editing these podcasts and getting them out to you. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for being part of this effort. We thank you for spending your time with us here on this podcast. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient. 
and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 